Lord God, as we come before you and open up your word, we pray that it will speak your truth into our hearts, that we might be changed to become more like you, to be more aware of your presence in us and through us and around us, to be drawn closer when we leave than when we come, that you may use us then to draw others closer to you and your love as well. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would, if you didn't already, take out your Bible and open it up. You're going to want to have it open. We're going to spend a lot of time here today. Um, We're going to be in Hosea chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. So open up the Bible in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, take the one out in front of you and take it home. It's our gift to you. Um, We want you to have it wherever you go. Um, We have the Dwayne Arnold Bible Fund that has been established for you to take a Bible home with you. And uh, we would love for you to do that as you go. But while you're looking that up, I want to also ask you a question, and that question is, whose approval do you long for? Whose approval do you long for? If if somebody were to say to you, I'm proud of you, or you did good, or you are good, whose words would carry the most weight? And chances are, Many of us would put a parent at the top of that list, right? As a parent myself, I I know it didn't take long for me to realize that that my words carry an incredible amount of weight in the ears and in the hearts of my kids. And it's really obvious when they're little. One of my, my favorite things that I learned to do early on while my kids were small enough to still rock them to sleep at night is, is to rock them to sleep and whisper words of affirmation in their ear. Things like, I love you, and you are smart, and you are good. And our youngest son, uh, Grayson, he's two, and so he still lets me do this. And um, if you've never met Grayson, his, his greatest aspiration, being the youngest in a big family is he wants to be just like all the older kids, specifically his oldest brothers, right? And they love to play basketball, which means that Grayson loves to play basketball. And so what I have learned is the most powerful affirmation that I can whisper in his ear is you are good at basketball. (laughs) And if you don't believe me, he's at this service. If you see him... Tell him he's good at basketball, you will see his little body just float with pride up into he'll float right back into the minivan, he'll float right home. Like it just fills him up to have this idea that this is who he is. It's it's cute, right? And I saw some of you parents, and I know there's so many good parents here. You've probably done similar things where you've spoken those truths into the hearts of your children. And yet we also know that inevitably, somewhere along the way, parents also have to begin to say things like, if you are good, right? Like, if you are good, then we will get to go to the park. Or if you are not good and you don't eat your vegetables, you won't get ice cream after dinner. And that's when we begin to learn that there are real and tangible consequences associated with our perceived or real goodness, our behavior, our obedience, or lack thereof. And And I think it's why we can all relate to longing to be approved of, longing to be seen and called good because we all want to go to the park. We all want to be told that we're good at basketball. We all want to eat 
the ice cream. Even as adults, we long for the approval of someone. If it's not a parent, it's a teacher, it's a coach, it's a boss, it's a sibling, it's a friend. And the problem with that is none of those relationships are perfect. Even in the best of circumstances, the greatest pain, the greatest parent, even in the best of circumstances, the greatest parent is simultaneously a child that is looking for that same affirmation from somewhere else their child is looking for from them. And on and on it goes in every relationship we have. And so the question becomes then, where do we find that affirmation and approval that we're looking for? Where do we find hope? And maybe we're in church. Maybe our relationship with the God of the universe is different. If if we could be right with God, if we could be seen as good by God, maybe that would help. I mean, after all, this is what the Apostle Paul makes the case of in Romans chapter 8 when he says this, if, say it with me, God is for us, then who can be against us? Who can be against us? But if God is for us, and spoiler alert, if you miss the rest of the sermon, he is for us, amen? Amen. If he is for us, though, then it can't possibly be based on how good or obedient we are, because if that's how it works, then it's going to be just like every other relationship, which means that we are inevitably going to fall short. And thankfully, our relationship with God is indeed different. It's not because we are different. It's because God is different. And that's what our reading for today is all about. Today's reading is from what I like to call the poetic prophet by the name of Hosea. Last week we learned that the entire Bible is really the story of humanity getting drawn away or distracted from the one true God, the God that made them, the God that loves them, the God that provides for their every needs and his presence is everywhere and in everything. And so last week, if you missed it, we got to see this epic battle, this competition between God's prophet Elijah and the 450 prophets of a false fake God that doesn't exist named Baal. And I suggested that because most of us aren't into foreign idol worship that maybe we instead take that word Baal and replace it with whatever it is in our life that takes us away from reality. Whatever it is in our life that draws us away from God and what is real. And because Baal wasn't real, right? And because he wasn't real, of course, the prophets of Baal lost the competition. I called it the ancient Hebrew version of Master Chef. Um, Basically, they had to make a sacrifice, but their God had to start the grill. Their God had to call down fire from heaven. And because Baal doesn't exist, it didn't happen. But for the one true God, it did. God poured fire down from heaven. It was awesome. Like, if that happened right now in this place, we'd all fall. No, actually, we'd all run away because the fire alarms would go off. But you would, if, you, if you saw that, and this was the presence of God doing this, you would do exactly what they did. They fell down on their faces, and they let go of the false god Baal, and they started to worship the one true God. In essence, they were saying to God, we promise to be good. And I'm sure that they're just like us when we get caught in our mistakes. I'm sure they meant every word. And just like us, 
it didn't last. It didn't last long at all. Actually, our reading today from Hosea comes 100 years later in the same region, the northern kingdom. And once again, they're receiving a word from God as a distracted and disobedient people. And up to this point in our journey together, we've talked a lot about the consequences of what it looks like for people when they fall from living God's best, when they fall short of following God's law and God's will. And we see it play out for the ancient nation of Israel time and time again. This is why if you've ever tried to just read through the Old Testament, so many of us just don't. We stop because as you're reading through it, you see these laws and then you see the consequences of breaking the laws and it's brutal to read. It's basically God telling them time and time again, if you're good, this is what will happen. And if you're not, these are going to be the consequences. And time and time again, we see the consequences. Destruction, war, death. Many of the things we see in our world today. But I'm happy to tell you that's not what today's reading is about. Today's reading is actually asking a different question. The question is, How does God feel about all this disobedience? Maybe you've wondered that yourself. When when you fall short, how does God feel about that? How does God feel? What is God's experience as they continue to fall short? God made the world. He made people. And he made them for the sole purpose of loving them and being loved by them. And from the very beginning, over and over again, they rejected him. How does that feel? Well, what we're going to see through the prophet of the words of the prophet Hosea, we're going to see that it causes God a lot of pain. And if you know anything about this book, you, you may remember, you probably remember the very beginning. It's, it's God calling Hosea into a terribly broken relationship. Let me just read the, ver- the second verse of the first chapter. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go. Marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Now, I, this isn't our actual text, and so I don't, I don't want to get lost in the question of why God would call a prophet to do this. I think that's a good question, and we could certainly talk about it over coffee afterwards, But it's not the question that this book is actually written to answer. This book is showing us how God feels when his people break their covenant with him over and over and over again. And it begins by showing us that it feels like a spouse who is married at home with children taking care of the kids while their partner is off with multiple other people. And anybody who's ever been caught in the wake of that situation knows that it's incredibly painful for everyone, but especially the one that's being cheated on. And that's the graphic image that begins to be painted in this picture of a God who is deeply and madly in love with these people that just won't love him back and instead are out loving somebody else. God's heart is broken. It's every sad, cheating love song that you've ever listened to. And, and I have to confess to you, when I, when I wrote that part in my sermon, I, 
I closed out Microsoft Word and I opened up Spotify and I searched playlists of cheating love songs. <laughs> and here's what I found. This is anecdotal. I wanted to have like the spectrum of generations of music. Um, and I was looking at different songs that I thought maybe reflected this. And I found that I couldn't find anything that's from like the last 20 years because all of the songs that have been written about this for the last 20 years, it's all like, I was better off without you. That's the song. Like Dixie Chicks. I mean, you, you can think of music, right? Like it's all the same. So I had to go really far back and I, I listened to Lion Eyes by the Eagles. How many of you remember the song Lion Eyes by the Eagles? Or, or go back even further, Cheatin' Heart by Hank Williams, Patsy Cline. How many of you, right? Like, the, this is it, right? This is it. That's how God feels. And then we get to chapter 11. And God uses a different metaphor to describe his relationship with his people. No longer is it a romantic relationship. Now he's going to use the idea of a parent and a child. And this is where we get into our reading in verse 1 of chapter 11. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. This made me think about my daughter, Sophie. She's, she's six years old now. But ever since she could crawl out of her own bed, she's, she's still actually the first one to wake up almost every morning. This morning when I was leaving for church, nobody else was awake. Sophie was awake. And so this is what she would do. She, even from like two and a half, three years old, she'd crawl out of bed. She'd come right to Alyssa's in my bedroom. She'd crawl into our bed. She'd crawl between the two of us. And she would wait until I woke up. I don't know why. She doesn't do this to Alyssa. She just does it to me. And as soon as I wake up, she takes my cell phone off of my nightstand. And she puts it on my chest. And she says, Daddy, can we look at my baby pictures? I mean, it's, it's the cutest thing. I, mean, it's, I very rarely say no because I just can't resist. And because she's only six, right? Like, I've had a cell phone, like, for three times as long as she's been alive. And so her pictures from the day she came home, they're all on my cell phone. And so what do we do? We flip through those pictures. And, and at this point, she's seen every one of them a thousand times before. But she still looks back. And she still asks questions. And I know, because it was only six years ago, I know everything about every single one of them. I can tell you what was going on outside the frame. These are memories. I remember these moments. And so I read this verse, and I think this is what God is doing for Israel. He's flipping through their baby pictures. He's going back to the very beginning. When you were just a child, I loved you. Out of Egypt, I called you my son. These are words of adoption. He called them, he fell in love with them and made them his own. Verse 2. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim, which is another word for Israel, we'll get to that in a minute, to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. God held their hand when they were just learning how to take a step. God cleaned their scraped knees when they fell. God kissed where it hurts. God gave them band-aids and neosporin to make sure that it didn't get infected. Verse 4, he says, I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. 
To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. This is God whispering in their ears, rocking them to sleep. I love you. I'm proud of you. Israel, you are good at basketball. That's my translation. And yet all of this aside, they still grew up to reject their parents. Everything that God has done for them is about to come undone. Verse 5, will they not return to Israel, to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. This is God then transitioning and saying, you can hear it in his voice, I have raised you to be better than this. I have taught you manners. I paid your tuition that you might have every opportunity in life. I have given you everything. And yet they are still about to suffer the consequences of choosing to go a different way. Verse 7. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God most high, I will by no means exalt them. In other words, God is saying, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep bailing them out. This is it. I can't do it. And you know what? That's really hard to understand, right? Like, how can God not intervene again? A hundred years ago, he called down fire from heaven. He can do this, right? It's like the child that just keeps getting thrown in jail because of the things they're doing wrong and they use their one call to call their parent over and over again. And on the other line, they say, I know you got the money, Dad. Just bail me out one more time. One more time, just do it. God says, I can't keep doing this. But then I think about parents that I know who understand. Parents of adult children who've been caught in a similar cycle, whether it's in addiction or poor choices that they keep falling into, I have, I've sat with those parents, maybe even some of you in this room, who, who have said, there's nothing more I can do. And I have never heard those words come from a place of hate or malice or indifference toward a child. Every parent I've ever heard that said that is saying it from a place of love. Because they're parents that so love their child that has fallen away, that their child falling away, that's an extension of them. And it's ripping their heart out of their chest. And it's being torn into pieces. God's heart is being torn out of his chest over these children who he loves and who he has raised and who keep falling away, and he keeps bailing them out over and over again. And like any parent that's actually been, if you've never been in that situation, you can't fully understand. But the ones who have can. God says, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep doing this. And like every other parent that's ever been through this, God also says, how can I give you up? How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? Now, Ephraim, I said before you could see that as Israel. It's, 
It's the primary tribe in the northern kingdom of Israel. So he's speaking to the same group of people. And in the second part of the verse where he says, how can I hand you over? These are words that are calling directly to what a parent had a right to do based on the Hebrew law. If you don't believe me, just look it up. It's in Deuteronomy 21. It was that for any parent who has a child who has gone wayward through drunkenness or gluttony or whatever it says that they have within their right to send that child to the edge of the city so that they can be stoned to death. How can I hand you over? That's what it looks like to hand over your child. And then it goes on and shows us how that happened in a bigger way to the entire cities of Admah and Zeboim. These were cities that were destroyed in the wake of the unfaithfulness of Sodom back in Genesis. It sounds horrible, but you also know that on some level, this is the way the world works, right? Spare the rod. How does it go? Spoil the child. Do you know that comes from the Bible? That's Proverbs chapter 13. And yet Hosea appears centuries after the law in Deuteronomy was written. And so that proves to us that anybody that actually lives that way that Israel is not going to be won over by doing that. They're actually worse now than they were when those laws were written. And the truth is, as we see, God is a father, and the last thing he wants to do is punish them. And so he says as much in verse 8, at the second part, he says, my heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. God's response to their disobedience is a changed and compassionate heart. Verse 9, I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. And friends, this is the verse that makes all the difference. Read that part with me. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I am God and not a man. Now, God is angry, and you would be angry too. The parents that have been in this situation, you're nodding, you understand. You may also understand that anger is always a secondary emotion. It is responding to something deeper. And what we see here is that it's God's response to his jealousy. He is jealously watching over these people who are giving themselves to something and to someone that is hurting them over and over again. And this thing is taking them away from him. And it's breaking his heart. And yet this is where we need to stop thinking about ourselves because his response is not the way that you and I would typically respond. He does not pour out that anger upon the ones that he loves. Do we not often do that? We let it out on the people we love, but instead God directs his anger to redeeming the thing that is taking them away from him over and over again in the first place, their hard hearts. We see this all play out 200 years after these words were written 
Israel's destroyed. They've been torn apart. They're exiled. All of these consequences have come to bear upon them, both in the northern kingdom and also in the southern kingdom. And God is going to speak again. And this time, he's speaking to the southern part through the prophet Ezekiel. And he says this, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take you out of these countries, and I'm going to gather you from all over, and I'm going to bring you back to your own land. I'm going to pour water over you, and I'm going to scrub you clean. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove the stone heart from your body and replace it with the heart that's God-willed, not self-willed. I'll put my spirit in you, and I will make it possible for you to do what I tell you and live by my commands. You'll once again live in the land I gave your ancestors. You'll be my people, and I will be your God. And you know how the rest of it goes. We'll live happily ever after, right? The unfaithful spouse comes back. The wayward child comes home forever. And it all comes true. It's a happy ending. And the question you're wondering is, is it that easy? <laughs> Did we miss a section here? <laughs> I know I wasn't in church last week, but, but was, there, was there a part in this story that they finally got their act together? And I want to tell you, no, you didn't miss anything. They never did get their act together, and the truth is they never will. And neither will you. And neither will I. And so the question becomes, how are we going to restore our relationship with God? And this means that the only way to restore our relationship with God is for God to take on all the hurt and the pain and the rejection upon himself. And the only way you can absorb those things that somebody has done to you is to forgive them. God forgives you. Over and over and over and over again, God forgives you. And he did it in a tangible and real way by sending his perfect son Jesus into the world who would grow up and would be baptized. And on the day of his baptism, his heavenly father would rock him and whisper in his ear, Matthew 3.17, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And then he will go on and die on the cross in the mystery of our faith to take upon every hurt and pain and rejection that we have ever placed on him or anyone else, and it hurts so bad that it killed his son. But it, he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave to extend that forgiveness to the world, and because he didn't stay dead, neither will we. And the Apostle Paul explains it this way. In the book of Galatians, he says, when the time set had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Put very simply, Jesus' perfection becomes our redemption. And that changes everything. It means that God is for us, always. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody, nothing. 
And the truth is, when you know that in your heart of hearts, it actually makes it easier to do the things that God has called us to do in the first place because you know that the rules have no bearing on how God feels about you. But rather, they call us to enter into the gift that he has extended to us by letting go of the things that don't matter, that don't exist, and entering into what's real by grabbing hold of the treasure of God's presence and the presence of others that he has already paid for on our behalf. And I'll leave you with a parable that explains this well. read it some years ago. It's about a little girl named Jenny. She was, she was five years old and she would go shopping with her mom, and her mom would do a lot of their shopping at this dime store. And she was at the dime store. They would go through the same checkout aisle every time. And in the checkout aisle that they went through, there was this, this cheap pair of pearl, this pearl necklace. And, and it's dime store necklace, right? But she saw this. She's five years old. She thinks this is the best thing in the world. She says, I'm going to save all my pennies, and I'm going to buy it. And her mom says, no, nah, you don't want to buy a dime store pearl necklace. You don't want to waste your money on that. But she was insistent. And so that's what she did. She saved up all her pennies. She went to the dime store. She bought that pearl necklace, and she loved it. She wore it everywhere. She wore it to school. She wore it to Sunday school at church. She wore it when she played outside. The only time she took it off was when she took a bath because her mom told her that if she wore it in the bath, it would turn her neck green. <laughs> and so she, she didn't want that, and so she took it off. But she put it right back on as soon as she was dried. And she had wonderful, loving parents, this little five-year-old girl named Jenny. And every night before they went to bed, before she went to bed, they would stop what they were doing, and they would go into her bedroom, and they would tuck her in, and they would read her a book, and they would pray their prayers, and they would say that they loved her. And one night they were doing this routine, and before they shut off the light, her dad pulled up beside her bed, and he says to her, Jenny, do you love me? And she says, yes, Daddy, of course I love you. I love you so much. And he said, okay, then give me your pearls. And she was confused. And she said, no, Daddy. You can have something else. Like, like, like maybe take Princess, my, my favorite toy horse. Like, that's fine. You can have that. And the dad said, no, 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 that's okay. Daddy loves you very much. Good night. He left the room, turned the light off. That was it. But a week later, same thing, same bedtime routine, prayers, book, all that stuff. And at the end of the time before the dad turned off the light, he looked at her and he said, Jenny, do you love me? And this time, she's not smiling, she's confused. She says, yes, daddy, I love you. And he says, and give me your pearls. And now she's angry. And she says, daddy, no. I love these pearls. You can have anything else in my room. I got this toy doll for my birthday. I haven't even taken it out of the box. I'll give, you, I'll give you the blanket that goes with it. I'll give you anything you want, but you cannot have my pearls. And the daddy said, okay. It's okay. Daddy loves you. Good night. And a couple days passed, and mom and dad walk into Jenny's room, and they come in, and Jenny is sitting on the edge of her bed, and she's got tears dripping down her cheeks. And her pearl necklace is in her hands. And her father sits next to her and puts his arm around her and he says, Honey, what is the matter? And with tears in her eyes, having no idea what's going on, she takes these pearls and she hands them to her father. And she says, Here you go, Dad. This is for you. And she handed to him her dime store pearl necklace. And in that moment, 
with tears in his own eyes, he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out a blue velvet case with a strand of real, genuine pearls to give to Jenny. And in that moment, she realizes she's only five, but she's smart. He had those in his pocket all along. (laughs) He was just waiting for her to give up the cheap dime store knockoff stuff so that she could wear the real thing instead. That is what the Christian life is. Every day, we wake up. It is repentance. It is receiving forgiveness. It is walking through life, constantly listening, trying to be more aware of the presence of God who is calling us as a good father to let go of the cheap alternative and take hold of what has always been ours because of him. It's the love of God as the father of Israel, and it's the love of God as the father of you and me as well. He has never stopped loving us, and because of Jesus, all God sees when he looks at you and me is good. It's all he sees. You're good. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one and nothing. And if that's true, then all that's left is to let go of the cheap knockoffs that we grab hold of so that we can take hold of the real thing, the love of God that is ours forever. Amen? Amen. To the broken and to the hurting, to the desperate and to the defeated, to the common, the average, the plain and the small, I want you to know you matter to God. To the washed up and the worn out, to the helpless and the hopeless, to the cast outs, the dropouts, the last picks and hypocrites, to the unimpressive and the underwhelming, to the nobodies and has-beens, to people just like me, you matter to God. You are not defined by your worst days or your biggest mistakes. And you are not the sum total of all your setbacks, slip-ups, failures, and faults. Because who you are is not determined by what you have, where you've been, or what you've done, but who Jesus declares you to be. You matter to God. Maybe at some point somebody told you something that simply wasn't true. That you're nothing but unworthy, unwanted, and unloved. But I want the loudest voice in your ear to be the voice that breaks the cedars and shakes the wilderness. And he says, you matter to me. Before the galaxies were born, or the first star gave light. Before the ocean waves crashed, or the night sky cracked with thunder. Before any creature crawled, or any bird sang. Before the planets were set in motion, he set in motion the plan of your salvation. From the highest heights of heaven, the Lord of all creation. Looked upon your desperation, he became like one of us to remake all of us. To make an orphan his child. To make a rebel his friend to set the prisoner free you matter to God so to all the sons and daughters of God to all my brothers and sisters in Christ behold his power and glory and majesty